Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why Mississippi narcotics officials are telling parents to check their children's Halloween treats very carefully this year. Then, how are Mississippians changing? Hear what researchers found out about voters' opinions on state issues. And in our book, quite often during the legislative session, is the focal point is to be, what are we going to cut next? And in our book club segment, an author with an eye for some of the Mississippi Delta's most memorable moments. Meet Hanny Mayfield. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Officials with the State Bureau of Narcotics are urging Mississippians to be cautious with candy this Halloween. Authorities found 760 units of edible THC candies in a Gulfport man's home. Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics Director John Dowdy says THC is a mind-altering ingredient in marijuana that can be engineered to be hundreds of times stronger than usual. Agents also found more than a pound of marijuana and more than 100 THC oil vape cartridges at the home of 40-year-old Homer Russell Smith. The products are worth nearly $15,000. Smith was arrested on Monday and charged with possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. Officials also seized five guns, including one that was reported stolen and more than $11,000 in cash. MBN director John Dowdy tells our Desiree Frazier the candy delivery was in close proximity to Halloween and contained fatal amounts of extracts. THC is the active ingredient that causes the high from uh, smoking marijuana. A process has been developed to be able to extract that THC from the marijuana plant, and then they're able to use that to infuse uh, candies and and create an oil uh, that can be smoked through uh, the e-cigarettes or the vapes. The candies that were seized as a result of this operation included gummy rings, gummy worms, and gumdrops. This is a common item that's being found in states that have legalized marijuana to include California, Colorado, and Washington State. A lot of packages we are intercepting currently in Mississippi are coming from those states, and this is not the first time that we've intercepted candy items, but probably one of the larger quantities. And I guess because it's near Halloween, it's a time when it would be more likely a child might consume it? One would have to wonder why these candies were being delivered in close proximity to Halloween. The concern that we have with these candies is that the THC content in them can vary. And I'll give you an example. Back in the Woodstock era, 
you know, you might smoke a marijuana joint that have three to four percent THC content. The high grade marijuana and the THC extracts that we're seeing on the market right now can be upwards to 35-40% THC. For a small child, that could be fatal. So if a child ate that gummy worm, it could really do some serious damage? Absolutely. You know, it could be fatal, could cause brain damage, and that's why we are making every effort we can to intercept as many of these packages as we can to make sure they don't fall into the hands of unsuspecting young people or children because of the potential health consequences. Do these candies look like normal gummy candies you would buy anywhere? Absolutely. It looks like anything that you might get off of the shelf at a store. The packaging is a little bit different than what you typically see in a convenience store or a retail store. And the packaging on these particular packages clearly indicated that they contained THC. But that doesn't mean that in every instance you're going to be able to obtain a package that's going to give you a clear indicator of the content. It sounds like this is going to be pretty tough since it is legal in some states. And as you said, it's being mailed across state lines. It is extremely difficult. We've developed a very good working relationship with the Postal Inspection Service. That's a law enforcement arm of Postal Service. We are doing everything we can to identify as many of these packages as we can identify and stop them from being delivered or else try to do controlled deliveries. This package was going to a man in Gulfport, and you believe he was going to sell the items? With the quantity that he had uh, received and what was found in the residence, we absolutely believe he was going to be selling the items And, you know, not only did we seize all the candies as well as the oils uh, and the high-grade leaf marijuana, uh, there was a substantial amount of cash that was also seized from the home, which is indicative of somebody that's in the business of trafficking narcotics. What can communities do to protect themselves from this? If you have suspicious activity, first and foremost, you need to report that to law enforcement. And if uh, parents are to receive items, say at Halloween, a thorough inspection of the package as well as uh, the content of the package would be very prudent. Mr. Dowdy, thank you so much for letting us know about this so that we can share this with our listeners. Absolutely. Glad to do it anytime. Brittany Dias is Special Events Manager for the City of Gulfport. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they hold family-friendly events with an eye towards safety. You know, we're all working together for, you know, the same goal to have families come out, have a good time, and they can share some tips on how to stay safe at Halloween. And then we can, you know, families can enjoy a good Halloween movie and just relax and have a good time together. So This would be an important event to have in light of the recent arrest of a Gulfport man for having candy that had THC in it. Correct, yes. Our main goal is to provide a leisure activity for families. So we've been partnering with our police department for several years now on this event, but they have been doing the National Night Out Against Crime for, you know, many years before that. So we're we're looking forward to it. Do all the communities in the surrounding areas that you know of have these kinds of events for children? I believe so. The city of Long Beach and Biloxi, you know, they offer a movie nights and they do a lot of family-friendly events. So I think, you know, a lot of the coastal cities do. Well, it sounds like you've got some good Halloween activities going on that people are enjoying. What's the turnout like? Um, last year we had over 2,300 
participants, and we expect that many or more this year. It's grown ever since. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks, Ms. Fraser. Leslie Robertson is project coordinator for the city of D'Iberville. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser their annual event is an alternative to going house to house on Halloween. They have a safe trunk or treat instead of going to house to house where uh, people may not be at home. Yeah, speaking about safe, you know that in Gulfport they found some candy that was laced with THC. And so keeping children safe is a big priority. Right. We're also um, recognizing the Teal Pumpkin campaign, which is for children with allergies, either food allergies or diabetes, that won't normally be able to get candy. So we're going to have trinkets and goodies to give to those children as well. Why is it important to have activities like this during Halloween? Our event began after Hurricane Katrina devastated the coast in 2005. Oh my goodness, we lost 40% of our housing. The Everville is a pretty safe community. It wasn't that it was a crime issue. It was the lack of housing. September, um, or the hurricane hit, and then a couple of months later, it's Halloween. So all of the businesses and a lot of the homeowners wanted to still participate because Halloween is such a festive time of year um, for the children. And in order to do that, we created this event called the Trunk or Treat so that everybody could still participate after such a devastating uh, disaster. So it kind of stuck with the community, and we've done it every every year. And the police and fire department have contributed by having a haunted house, which is called the House of Pain, named after our police chief, uh, Chief Wayne Payne. So it, it really gets the community involved in a, in a great, safe, fun night of festivities, really. It does sound like fun and a way to have everybody involved. It is a lot of fun, and we take a lot of pictures and post them on social media for, um, you know, the parents and the grandparents to see the kids all dressed up. It's, it's a good time. Well, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for inquiring. We appreciate it. Coming up, how are Mississippians changing? Here are what researchers found out about voters' opinions on state issues. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. The last time we talked with former White House Chief of Staff Leon Panetta, he had some advice for President Trump. He simply has to change the way he's approaching these issues on Capitol Hill if he's going to have any chance of being able to develop a record. Leon Panetta will join us once again. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MVB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As the state legislature gears up for a new session, researchers at Millsaps College are sharing what matters most to Mississippi voters. Analysts found that top issues for those surveyed are education, health care, college funding, and roads and bridges. The annual State of the State survey by Millsaps College and Chisholm Strategies takes a closer look at the opinions and attitudes of voters. They polled Mississippians about raising taxes, funding public education, creating a state lottery, and fixing the transportation infrastructure, among other topics. The group also asked about options respondents would support in order to fund these issues. For example, while 56% of people said public education funding is too low, only 44% said they would approve income tax increases to support it. Dr. Nathan Schrader is professor of political science at Millsap College, he tells us which findings he found surprising. The Millsaps College Chisholm Strategy State of the State survey was an idea that we developed 
because we wanted to take a closer look at the the opinions and the attitudes of Mississippians regarding some of the major issues facing the state. But also, as you see in the report, we wanted to try to find out more about their uh, views regarding some of the state government institutions and actors as well, and their perceptions of whether the state's moving in the right direction or the wrong one, and maybe try to determine if there are any issues that we could find that might help influence that viewpoint. Um, Did you choose based on age as well to get a wider demographic? I can, in a nutshell, explain how these 509 people are chosen, because that's one of the most frequently misunderstood things in the public when it comes to polling. Lots of times folks will look at a poll and they'll say, well, I wasn't polled. <laughs> my neighbor and my friends weren't polled. Uh, you know, how can you take a, sa- a sample of 509 people and say it's reflective of the whole state? Or, Well, the way that works is that the methodology includes an attempt to match the profile of the electorate as a whole. So we took into account the electorate that voted in the statewide election in Mississippi in November 2015. And we matched up the profile of the voters from the state in terms of gender, ethnicity, or something else. So the effort by any credible polls to try to make sure that the sample reflects the actual electorate. I'm looking at the age, and by far the highest age group is 65 or older at 31% of respondents. Mm-hmm. Is that because that age group was more likely to vote? Yes, and that reflects a larger national fact as well, that the older subsets of the electorate tend to be the most active voters in all types of elections, especially when it gets down to local county, municipal, and state elections, the electorate gets older as we go. The presidential or national electorate tends to skew slightly younger. Were there any surprises in terms of what you were expecting or others who conducted the survey were expecting? Part of the reason we asked the questions that we did is because we know the legislature returns in January for the next session. The reason we asked about the types of issues that we did is because we wanted to attempt to both determine what is it that the public's interested in, what kind of results they want to see. But we were also hoping this may prove to be informative to elected officials and policymakers, right? If they get the sense that there's a strong level of support, for example, in our poll, public education, we asked the question of whether the voters believe that the funding level was too high, too low, or about right. And we found a significant gap there that 56% of the people polled said that public education funding is too low. Only 10% had said it was too high, and there was about 21% who said it's fine the way it is. So that the fact that there's such a significant gap there between the folks saying it's too low and about right or too high tells me that there is an appetite among the public to see the legislature move on that issue to do something about it. I'll tell you there were two points in the survey that just things I maybe didn't expect to see. There's sort of this attitude, I think, among politicos in Mississippi that the voters here are kind of reflexively against tax increases. And what we decided to do with this survey was to try to measure the voters' tolerance of tax increases specifically linked to education, public school funding. So after we asked them the question about whether people think that schools are, the funding is too high, too low, or just about right, we followed that up with several options, asking them, would you support increasing X type of tax to specifically to increase public school funding? And, you know, we asked them what, for one thing, the income tax. That was 44% said they would support increasing income tax rates for higher wage earners. Only 40% said no. And even on a corporate tax, 
46% of Mississippians said they'd support enacting higher tax rates on corporations, and 41% said no. Those were very close. I was expecting a gap in those leaning no. And in fact, they're slightly leaning in the direction of the voters having a level of tolerance. Now, I thought it was surprising, too, that there was an overwhelming support for a state lottery if the funds were going to public schools. Right. There have been lots of news reports in the past since this year's legislative session ended where you kind of get the sense that maybe the lottery could really be on the horizon, right? There seems to be support growing for that. And this could be an informative piece of data for lawmakers because there's two questions that will inevitably come up with the lottery or legislation pertaining to the lottery. The first is actually creating it and establishing it. The second piece of this is the debate over what do you use the money for? And if you look across the nation, states use their lottery proceeds for a variety of things. And I think this survey shows that the public favors the idea of a lottery with that money going to boost school funding. You ask about Governor Phil Bryant, Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves, and Attorney General Jim Hood. And you also do a lot of comparisons between approval of Jim Hood compared to Tate Reeves. This is because they are likely to be candidates for governor in the next race? We had a limited amount of space where we could ask about certain state officials. And we decided since this particular survey was built as a state of the state survey, we would focus on state, not federal actors and issues. And we decided that the the state officials positions that we most frequently see in the news during the legislative session and to be the legislature itself, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the attorney general. It just so happens, of course, that the sitting lieutenant governors and sitting attorney general happen to be the people who are likely gubernatorial candidates. Respondents were asked about the priority in the legislature, and the majority said the priority should be fixing roads and bridges, which, of course, is the issue that was left hanging at the end of last legislative session. You're correct. The plurality of the respondents said fixing roads and bridges was the top priority. But if you were to take and add together the responses that people gave that their top priority was either fixing roads and bridges, more money for public education, increasing support financially for universities and community colleges, and making health care more accessible and affordable, almost 60% of respondents in, in the state went in that direction of one of those four options. Meanwhile, only um, 16% had said, on the other hand, their top priority is reducing the size of state government. And I think that speaks a little bit to what we hear quite often during the legislative session is the focal point is to be, what are we going to cut next? Well, if you look at nearly 60% of the voters who were part of this survey, it said, we want money for roads, money for public schools. We want better funding for the universities and community colleges and uh, making health care more accessible and affordable. Dr. Nathan Schrader is a professor of political science at Millsaps College, and thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. The findings of the survey are located online at millsaps.edu. Coming up in our book club, meet the author with an eye for some of the mis- some of Mississippi's Let me try that again. Coming up, meet the author with an eye for some of the Mississippi Delta's most memorable moments. Penny Mayfield is next on Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children, from acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces, and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Award-winning journalist, documentarian, festival organizer, photographer, and now author, these are just a few of the titles used to describe Penny Flock Mayfield. Her first book is called Live from the Mississippi Delta. The collection of over 200 black and white and color photographs chronicles live music in the heart of the Delta. She says the shots have been taken during her long career. The images are joined by tales of local icons such as Early Wright, Wade Walton, and B.B. King. Mayfield takes readers on a tour of the Mississippi Delta's festivals, clubs, churches, and iconic juke joints, as well as blues, markers, and museums. She tells us her origins are aligned with the origins of blues music. I grew up in Tutwala, which is actually the birthplace of the blues. I might get a fight on my hands about that, but uh, W.C. Handy first heard the blues played there outside the depot in 1903. You know, I was looking through the book, and and there's so many musicians in Mississippi, and then there are also people who came to Mississippi drawn to the to the Delta. There's this great picture of James Brown you have in here, and it's, <laughs> it's a very candid look. I mean, he's smiling, this big smile, and it looks like it's a genuine smile. That particular picture was during the performance. I had spent the afternoon up there with him and his band, and. He is called the boss by his band, and sitting in there at that sound check, I could see why, because he was on top of them. I, I think people say he can hear every note that's play, being played and anything's wrong, and he made them go over things over and over and over. It was an interesting experience for me. I had asked his manager to allow me time for an interview, and I did. And uh, after the sound check, it was almost like a parting of the waves of the Red Sea because he was a tiny little man, and he wore high-heeled boots, you know, and it was just like Moses going across the Red Sea back up to his rooms. But that particular photograph was taken during a very, very lively performance where everybody... And the whole place were dancing. They were dancing everywhere. We have had a lot of great musicians around here in a lot of different places. And uh, I just love going. And I've been taking pictures of, of live events for about 40 years. I started going to blues clubs by myself and... It was a, a whole new world, and it frankly changed my life. There are a couple pictures that I just love from Margaret's Blue Diamond Lounge in Clarksdale. Oh, that great. It's people dancing, and it looks like kind of a dive. You know, there's nothing on the walls. Definitely and a dive. Like light bulbs hanging from the ceiling, and people having an absolutely marvelous time just dancing. Right, right. right. Well, I, I had the worst time trying to decide which pictures to use. The dancing pictures, to me, uh, I just they're just favorites of mine. And uh, there's so many different clubs that we used to go to that are no longer here. They were great fun, and I took lots and lots of people for their first time to go in a blues club like that. There are also some festivals you feature. The Sunflower Festival here in Clarksdale is still a free event. And we have a lot of smaller festivals. I think Clarksdale can claim to have live blues music every night of the week. Who's on the cover of the book? This is a man who was a wonderful blues harmonica player who is named Arthur Jones. And he is not the cover that I had selected. I had selected a picture from the Dewdrop Inn in Shelby with the Wesley Jefferson Band. And when University Press designer 
sent me this, I just, it was so perfect that I started crying because this person on the cover was one of my best friends, and he died, oh, several years ago. But he was something of a streetwalk philosopher. And at the Sunflower Festival, he always played acoustic stages. In his performances, he would stop and talk about life and all the things that were great about it and all the things that were bad about it. And people would come for years just to hear his commentary because it was so perfect. The book is called Live from the Mississippi Delta. We've been speaking with the photographer and the journalist and the text writer. There's a lot of good text in here that accompanies the photos. Penny Flaught Mayfield. Penny, thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. Karen, I thank you very much, and I'm sorry that I talk so much because I used to help get on tour buses up here way back, and I always say that everybody knows Southern women talk slow, but they don't know they talk so much. (laughs) Join us tomorrow at 8.30 for the next show. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.com.